The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, adult themes, racists, idiots, and the depressing reality of reality. Saturday, the 3rd of July, 2021. In this episode, we hear about Labor's bold and exciting plan. Today, I'm announcing that a Labor government I lead will commission a full employment white paper. We hear some great advice from the New South Wales Health Minister. When you're in a war, you don't win it with wacko views. And we hear a few thoughts about critical race theory. As parents, we should be able to decide when we tell our kids that they're white. Okay? This is the 9pm four-phase year two custard duck. A bit of fire has boiled to the surface in the Gulf of Mexico after an undersea gas pipeline ruptured. Several fire control boats were dispatched to pump water over the flames. The Canadian town of Lytton has been burnt to the ground in extreme wildfires that have been raging across the province of British Columbia as Canada experiences an unprecedented heatwave with temperatures reaching a rare high of 49.6 degrees Celsius. The billionaire space race is taking off in a big way. Shares of Virgin Galactic are up today, though well off their highs. After the company announced it would launch founder Sir Richard Branson into space on July 11th, nine days ahead of Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin trip on July 20th. Ah, yes. Canada is on fire. The Gulf of Mexico is on fire. Well, a tiny bit of it is. Let's not get all sooky about it. And billionaires are having a space race. But apart from all that, it's time to rejoice. Hurrah! Australia has a plan to work its way out of the coronavirus mess. Uh, It has four phases, so that's good. Uh, And I'll come to that in a moment. But first, the vaccine confusion. In Australia, uh, as opposed to nearly everywhere fucking else on the planet, there's enormous sookage over which brand of COVID-19 vaccine you'll get. Now, personally, I'll take what I can get, and I have, but some people want a specific brand because the other brand on offer has potential side effects which are an order of magnitude less likely than the potential risk from taking an aspirin. Now, on Tuesday... I think it was, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, it still is, announced that the AstraZeneca vaccine could now be given to people under the age of 40. That was an announcement that completely blindsided the state premiers because this wasn't a thing that they decided in the so-called National Cabinet, and it blindsided the health professionals as well. Interestingly, on... The 7am podcast on Friday, contributing editor to the monthly Rachel Withers, wondered whether this was a case of policy by misspeak. He was clearly quite exhausted in this press conference. He was tired and cranky and defensive and, you know, sort of trying to shut down questions. And his communication isn't the clearest at the best of times. So it seems genuinely possible that we've seen a major change to the vaccine rollout this week based on something he accidentally said. 
Yeah, well, when I went back and looked at the transcript of the press conference, I noticed that the the change to allow under-40s to come forward wasn't actually part of his announcements up front um, and it wasn't mentioned in the press release that came out after National Cabinet. This particular piece of news about under-40s being allowed to come forward actually came about in an answer to a question from a journalist seeking to clarify what the indemnity changes, which had been announced, meant for people who were under 40. And it seemed like a really strange way to make such a major change to the phased nature of the rollout, sort of back announcing it. Well, if they wish to go and speak to their, jo- their, their doctor and have access to the AstraZeneca vaccine, they can do so. So the answer is yes, they can go and do that. And so the media obviously started reporting it as a huge deal, and it, it was all based off these, these short answers that slipped out of Morrison's mouth in answer to a question. But if the announcement was made in error, the federal government has decided to run with it uh, rather than acknowledge that the Prime Minister got it wrong. I find that unlikely, of course, because Scott Morrison is renowned for his cheerful eagerness to take the blame for the smallest of glitches laid at his feet. Yeah, of course. Still, there's a report in the Saturday paper today that on Monday, the chief health officers had actually urged Morrison to drop the AstraZeneca vaccine entirely, and instead he broadened its usage. So there's that. And yes, we also have a national plan to transition Australia's national COVID-19 response, national plan response plan, and I've linked to it. But what worries me is how vague it is. It's it's a bit of A4. It lists what might happen in the four stages. Uh, but they're, they're all things that may be done in those stages. And there's no measurable concrete targets. The weasel words here, yeah, like may include actions, there's no clear definitions of what those actions might be. It's the sort of thing which would cause you to fail your project management 101 course, right? The, the basic thing you do is is define what, what the end state is. What is the measurable goal that you are aiming to reach and what are the concrete measurable steps that you will take on the way to that end goal? Uh, Rob Stott, who's editorial director of uh, Junkie Media, he tweeted, imagine announcing 18 months into a pandemic that phase one of your new deal is an intention to vaccinate the population. Because that's what's in there, right? And Mark Newton, friend of the pod, he said the only thing National Cabinet actually did today, uh, the day that they met, uh is reduce the international arrivals quota. The rest of the presser was about what they might do in the future if they make a series of decisions that have not yet been made. It's imaginary. There remains, at this point, no plan. I quite liked, uh, actually, the alternative plan put together by uh, philosopher Pat Stokes, who was on the pod uh, a few weeks back. He says... Uh, well, his four phases are uh, phase A, the current phase, a duck trying to work a can opener. Uh, you seek to destroy COVID-19 by arguing about it ceaselessly with fellow amateurs. Measures may include compulsory Twitter, uh, with flights cancelled, find more creative ways to use border policy to do racism, and just repeat, you got this. Uh Phase two, the fuck around phase, seek to destroy COVID-19 with the most powerful weapon of all, satire. 
Other measures may include repurposing the set of a much-loved 1980s Australian kids' TV show, My Secret Valley, as a quarantine facility, although you could also go for Waratah, Waratah National Park from Skippy. Uh, and did we try Sado already? How did that go? Phase three, the find-out phase. Oh, shit, oh, God, oh, shit, you guys. Maybe some sort of timely mass vaccination program? And phase four, COVID is your dad now. We evacuate under cover of darkness like we did at Gallipoli. Measures may include you love COVID, you want to marry COVID, you and SARS-CoV-2, the pathogen that causes COVID-19, sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Thank you, Pat Stokes. Look, I'm glad we have uh, four phases now because that's way better than three steps, uh, which we had in the Roadmap to a COVID-Safe Australia day-to-date for May 2020, a three-step pathway for easing restrictions. And don't we all uh, remember that? No, of course we don't. But that was just the whole thing, step one, Five visitors at home, 10 in business, blah, blah, blah. There'd be population-based testing. Uh, Step two, gatherings uh, of 20 in your home. And then step three, gathering sizes up to 100. And I'm just looking at this. I'm trying to find the word vaccine. Let me just search in this PDF for the word vaccine. No results found. (laughs) Oh, dear. Speaking of a year ago, um, I did an episode of this very pod titled The 9pm His Plague Diary 12, The Maskening. That was back when I thought that every few days uh, in a relatively short process I'd have something to say, something personal about how I was reacting to it. I didn't think it was going to be this endless fucking grind of 18 months or so it is now uh, since, well, since we discovered uh, the virus. Uh, what's that? 15 months of various lockdowns. But uh, going back to July 2020, here's how that podcast started. Good morning. The city of Melbourne has been plunged back into lockdown as police warned they will be ruthless to keep five million residents... Tonight, the army will move in, helping police create a ring of steel around the city. Protected by rolling roadblocks and mobile patrol. They'll start enforcing the second shutdown from midnight and we're being warned not to expect any leniency. Bear in mind, this will be a massive hit to the economy. This will be a huge hit for workers and their employers. They now have to endure another six-week lockdown. But that's okay, right? Because an oath-sworn army is on the way. Yeah, g'day, viewers. Uh, It's Simon Mask here with uh, Simeon uh, behind me. We've just got some news. The World Health Order uh, Organisation has crumbled. They've admitted it's all bullshit. We're heading into Melbourne, everybody, to 120 Racecourse Road, Flemington. Now, understand we're going in there understanding that we are under oath to General Flynn. Okay? We have the Australian Common Law, the Magna Carta behind us. I am now calling to every able man and woman to come to 120 Road, 120 Racecourse Road, Flemington, Melbourne. Wow, different times indeed, isn't it? It's hard to remember. That's that's a year ago now, and that address, 
in Flemington was one of the nine tower blocks that was suddenly put into lockdown, uh, something that was later found to have breached the residents' human rights. Uh, And in the Saturday paper uh, today, quote, an investigation by the Victorian Ombudsman has found the government's directive for that lockdown went against advice from public health officials. The Victorian government refuses to say sorry. It's a good piece, yeah. They were different times, and that's why it's worth comparing the numbers. As that lockdown was kicking in, uh, in in July in Melbourne, you know, a couple of weeks after it started, there were COVID-19 case numbers well in excess of 3,000, and they were rising at, at like 200 to 250 or more per day. Currently, in New South Wales, uh, yes, there's quite a few um, locally acquired cases. Uh, we're looking at a total of 2,400 or 2,447 since the beginning of the entire pandemic. And numbers are rising at about 30, 35 per day at the peak today. Um, so a tenth, roughly. No, what's that? An eighth, something, you know, a lot, lot less. So, yes. It is a different situation. So here in the present, I'm getting a bit fucking sick of random strangers bleeding on about what they reckon is and isn't, say, essential in other people's lives in terms of uh, go out for essential purposes based on sweet fuck all in their own sense of misery, I suppose. And I'm, I'm just sick of attention being given to people whose opinions are... Well, they're just reckons, right? I mean, a news story the other day. Actor Rebel Wilson has publicly slammed Sydney's latest lockdown, saying you can't keep locking down as a strategy, she says, from the United States. Scott Morrowind on Twitter followed that up. Yeah, if Rebel Wilson says that. He said, yeah, comedian Rove McManus says the Maginot line could have worked with more manpower. Host Daryl Summers declares, Pope is not God's sovereign. It is by faith alone that the Christian is saved. And Peter Hellier outlines a seven-point plan for Korean reunification, declaring a second sunshine policy with Juche ideals. Comedians, I mean, obviously have zero expertise in these matters. And I I will say to neither do I, unless, you know, we happen to have a relevant day job. And in that context, I'm saying the same not really an expert in this field applies to the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, who get billed as being the top doctors organisation in Australia, or even even really most immunologists and epidemiologists. Now, a reminder, the AMA is not a health organisation. It's the doctors' union, or more officially, it, quote, promotes and protects the professional interests of doctors. Uh, I I will say I have been advised that in New South Wales, that kind of industrial relations role uh, isn't with the AMA. It's with another organisation, but broadly... The AMA is a union. And the head of AMA, uh, the AMA, uh, his specialty, even though he keeps getting quoted on this, his specialty is knee and hip replacement surgery. 
So to call him Australia's top doctor is a bit like calling, uh, and I'm uh, uh, Anthony Baxter, I'm quoting here for this, he said it's a bit like calling the president of the Transport Workers Union our top truckie. I mean, no, they don't even have to be currently driving at all. They're a union administrator. And the AMA has no more access to expert advice that informs the government decisions than you or I do. And even if they did, it's not their decision to make. It's just reckons. They have no structure within their organisation to evaluate this kind of stuff. Only about 30% of doctors are members of the AMA, and most of them don't have expertise in this area. Now, that's fine. Someone who is a doctor should be able to analyse what's being said better than someone who isn't. But that doesn't make them an expert. You know, that's fine. They're entitled to express their reckons. We all are. And and quite frankly, I, I must remind you, I'm not making a comment here before, you know, for or against particular measures, for or against lockdowns, whatever. I don't know. I will criticise... Um, public communication, because I have worked in the media for a very long time, and I know when someone's not being clear. But personally, you know, I don't really want to dig into the details of this. Just tell me clearly what the rules are, so I know what I'm meant to be doing, and I will hope that the advice is correct, and I'll rely on people who actually know about these things to investigate that. Now, I know some of the explanations, uh, say, currently from New South Wales Health aren't the world's best job of public communications, but they're not, they're not cryptic crosswords either. They're basically saying, if you're in this place and did these things, then do this. And I think people get muddled because they look at it all and go, oh, well, I have to do X, or, you know, I had to in the past because I lived in a different state. But I had to do X, but this other person now only has to do Y. It's all so unfair. Look, didums. It's complicated. You don't have all the pieces. Situations change. Knowledge of how to respond changes. And quite frankly, you don't need to follow the fall of every sparrow in the continuous flow of news. That will drive you mad. Don't do it. You don't need to know what other people have to do. You know, unless you're one of the people affected or have relatives who are, it really doesn't matter whether overnight it's been 11 cases or 13 cases to 8pm or whatever. Now, okay, not everyone can do this, sure. Not everyone can detach. But unless you're right in the middle of things, just check a couple of times a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. Don't Watch the press conferences. Just read the summaries once everyone has figured it out. Because you've got to remember, when the journalists are asking questions at the press conference, they haven't seen the information yet. They're asking these questions blind. If you just wait an hour, you'll, you know, you'll get a better view of what's happening. Is, I mean, this is becoming a bit of a rant, I know, but then that's why you listen to this podcast. But 
try to remember that if there's an aspect of the government's response that you don't personally understand, I mean, obviously it's because corrupt forces are hiding thousands of sick people on ventilators in the metro tunnels and and then they're being shuttled by dark helicopters down to Jervis Bay. I mentioned immunologists there too. I mean, most immunologists don't know much about public health and infectious diseases and pandemics. I mean, if you look at what immunology does, it covers like an enormous range of things. Maybe immunologists know how to how you know the spike proteins enable the virus to work, or maybe they know how to tell if you're allergic to stuff or how T cells work. Doesn't mean they understand this stuff. It's the same as you know, I mean, I, I've been labelled a computer person, right, because I know stuff about computers, and yes, I did a major in computing science, and yes, I've qualified for professional association membership, and I know some things. But that doesn't mean I also know how to manage, uh, you know, a, a CRM system rollout or debug a Windows app or, you know, a whole range of things. I only know what I know. All of these fields are really, really complicated, and most experts know a lot about their particular bit of that, That's what makes them experts, but it doesn't make them experts in everything. Someone tweeted the other day about a media aspect to this, and this is where I do have strong opinions, (laughs) because no strong opinions so far in this this episode. Um, News outlets need to move quickly, and eventually, when it comes down to deadline, any expert will do as long as they're available, could speak clearly and have a title that'll look relevant and stuck at the bottom of TV screen, or if it's print, after the closing quote marks, comma, said Professor Jane Smith from the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Now, if Professor Smith has been on the TV a few times before, she might have been talking about cancer research or hip surgery or drug addiction or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's, oh, this is Professor Smith. Professor, she's smart. And in the past, she's said things I agree with so... What she's saying now must be true. And I I really should say here probably John Smith rather than Jane Smith because men are far more likely to say yes to a request outside their immediate field uh, than women are. And as an aside, uh, that's why I've done fewer media spots on, on radio and TV and so on in the last year than I might have in the past. I'm trying harder to just go, well, yeah, I, I could talk about that, but... Maybe there's someone better, let me suggest someone, and I try to suggest a woman when I can. But, you know, the media is a media thing, deadlines. They just need a face on the telly, and it just has to have something vaguely relevant at the bottom. So think about that, I think, when you're uh, consuming the media. Now, I know at, at this point, Some people will want me to mention Norman Swan, Dr. Norman Swan, the ABC's health reporter, etc., etc. Sure, he said some things that a lot of people have decided they don't like, don't agree with, and and so they kind of pounce on everything he says. I do listen to the, the CoronaCast podcast, but I hope that I can differentiate between um when you know they're they're reporting stuff and commenting on stuff uh i i do criticize norman swan for saying things like he said the other day the aim is to turn covid-19 into the common cold well 
that's an analogy, and I worry that some people uh, take that literally. They thought, you know, it's it's still going to be a nastier illness than the common cold is. Uh, and I know uh, people want him to continually own up to uh, to his negative comments about the uh, about the vaccines. Look, he did that. You don't need him to do it every fucking time he speaks. Anyway, he's just one voice in it. Get over it. Celebrities are, of course, uh, just picking up little things that they see in, you know, Vox Pops or Talkback Radio or whatever and say, oh, well, Sydney isn't locking down because I saw a photograph of of a car in the street. Uh, Keaton Joshi tweeted a couple of charts the other day uh, from uh, Google's mobility data, like tracking phones and Apple's the same. The drop in movements towards retail stores and recreation uh, and and such is the same currently in New South Wales as it was in the Victorian one. Don't believe the telephoto photos and all of that. And on the question of, you know, whether Sydney's lockdown, the one we're currently in, we're one week into it, what is nominally at this stage a two-week lockdown. Did it come too late? Well, we can't really say. There's a piece, and I've linked to it as usual again, Dr Catherine Bennett, who is an epidemiologist, uh, she points out that that thing that Norman Swan used to say, that for every day you delay lockdown, it adds a week at the end, uh, although the research back in November said for every three days it's three weeks, so it's not quite the same thing. Anyway... In the current situation, in the current scenario in New South Wales, it's it's actually not relevant, that modelling, and she explains why. Do read it. <sighs> what else? Um, look, I will wrap with the, the, the COVID stuff with this one. Uh, news today uh, that two owners of a cafe in Jindabyne were arrested after the cops uh, received numerous complaints uh, from members of the public that staff were not complying with health orders. Uh, the cops found the owners uh, in their early 30s were not wearing face masks despite being asked to do so. Uh, so they were arrested and charged, later released on conditional bail. Two days later, the cops went back Still no face masks are being worn by members of the public in that cafe. No QR code uh, or manual sign-in sheet. So those owners were hit with $1,000 fines. Uh, In that same press conference, which was today, the Saturday, uh, the New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard had this to say. When you're in a war, you don't win it with wacko views. And unfortunately, we're seeing that with some people who think that it's okay not to wear masks. My strong message to the community is we will only win this war against the virus if people wear masks and follow all of the other instructions that we understand will keep us safe. We owe this to ourselves. We owe this to the community more broadly. We owe this to our families. Wear a mask and don't get caught up in the wacko views that some are expressing. Wacko. Uh, Meanwhile, on the subject of pandemics, Paul Kidd reminded us today it's exactly 40 years since the first media article on the disease that would become known as AIDS. 40 years, 78 million infections, 39 million dead, and HIV is still with us.
I've linked to the article, the headline, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. I've heard many say the United States is indeed built on oppression and remains a systematically, systemically racist place. All I can say, Mr. President, is that's not the America that I see and that's not the America that I know. That's Senator Josh Hawley from the United States. You'll be shocked to hear that he's a Republican. You'll probably be shocked to hear that he's from Missouri. And you'll be shocked to hear that he's white. He's a bit white. The whole critical race thing has been kicking off in the US, as you've probably noticed in the background. Uh, Everyone's getting in on it from the uh, Republican side of politics. For example, Pat Robertson who's, uh, well, described by the Pedia as an American media mogul, televangelist, political commentator, uh, former Southern Baptist minister, former Republican presidential candidate. Uh, he's uh, currently associated with the charismatic movement within Protestant evangelicalism, and he's chairman of the Christian Broadcasting Network. He's 91 years old, and he says critical race theory is a monstrous evil. What is it that the people of color have been oppressed by the white people, and the white people begin to be racist by the time they're uh, two or three months old, and they, therefore, the people of color have to rise up and overtake their oppressors, and then, having gotten the whip handle, if I can use that term, then to instruct their white neighbors how to behave. Now, that's critical race theory. Well, that's not critical race theory. Critical race theory is, uh, well, a fairly straightforward idea. It's the idea that you analyse things like American law uh, and other such things uh, in the context of race. Uh, it's an, an American thing originally, but it spread, the idea of critical race theory has uh, spread over the years to the UK, Canada, Australia, and so on, everywhere where there are structural issues to do with race. Uh, yeah, critical race theory just examines, quote from the PDA, social, cultural and legal issues as they relate to race and racism. It's just a, it's just a discipline which says, hey, why don't we look at it? But, you know, people like Pat Robertson are very upset. Blair Erskine on uh, TikTok via Twitter, etc., uh, she was really worried. She says, yeah, she says, you're not teaching my kid critical race theory. As parents, we should be able to decide when we tell our kids that they're white, okay? How about a, mm, I don't know, a complimentary race theory, okay, where we give each other compliments because the key to ending racism isn't to make white people feel bad, okay? It's to make white people feel better, than everybody else. I mean, y'all, they want to teach kids how to hate each other because of their skin color. Okay, my kids don't need to learn that. We teach them that at home. I mean, <laughs> critical race? Critical race? My kid has tight lungs. He can't run good, okay? He's allergic to the sun. I got to saran wrap him up before he goes outside. What happened to fun runs? <laughs> what happened to fun runs? 
This is what I teach my son, okay? Every morning my son wakes up and he says, I identify as an American taxpayer. My God is a white cop. My potato head has a penis. My Pomeranian is straight. And my pronouns are confusing. I don't know what pronouns are. Quite a serious episode so far, isn't it? I'll, I'll see if I can change that a little bit. Let's uh, try and perk up. Although it's very, it's very difficult to really get a big <laughs> joking mood going these days, isn't it? Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just this week. Uh, but it, but in, in 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 the interest of having a bit more fun, uh, it was suggested that with Sydney in its uh, in its lockdown, that I, I do another episode of the eight pm quiz, and I thought, yeah, yeah, right. So there will be another episode of the eight pm quiz this coming Thursday night, the eighth of June, on my YouTube channel. It's a live stream. It's a pub style quiz. Thursday, this coming Thursday, the eighth of June at eight pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Just go to my YouTube channel. You'll see the link. I would really like you to come and play or just watch. Um, and, uh, you know, if we get the numbers up a bit, I will be encouraged uh, to to do more in, in the second half of this year of our Lord 2021. Uh, the next episode of this podcast... Uh, will probably be the one with space archaeologist Dr. Alice Gorman. That's the the last one of the autumn series, even though it's kind of winter now. Uh, and I'm going to count this one towards the autumn series just so it's in the sequence. On the, you know, I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter what we call it. Uh, so that's coming up. Dr. Space Junk is awesome, as you know. Uh, and if if her work gets delayed a bit, I'll I'll find another guest. I'll find another guest. Do feel free to offer suggestions. Meanwhile, as you know, this podcast is made possible by you, the generous listener. And for this episode in particular, these are actually, many of these are people for, you know, who's, who's chucked in a few bucks uh, for the 8pm quiz, but I'll, I'll put them all in this one batch. It's thank you to Bren Carruthers, Chris Scoble, Chrissy M, Kimberly Heitman, Pete Lawler, Pete Sweetman or Sweatman, I should have checked. Phil Kernick, and Phil has taken out uh, an Edict Level 2 Schooner annual subscription. Uh, so that's good. Thank you, Phil. Sebastian Tauchman had uh, an Edict 01 Flat White annual subscription, which just renewed. Thank you, Sebastian. Uh, Shane O'Neill, uh, and two more people who choose to remain anonymous. Also, Peter Leverdink, who's been a longtime uh, supporter of the pod. Uh, didn't send money, but sent a bottle of gin. Always appreciated. He sent me a bottle of Wild Spirits Wildlife Dry Gin. Now, I, I would mention this because um, uh, James Thing, whatever his name is, James, who who is Wild Spirit Dry Gin, his uh, notes on this say it's distilled with Victorian bergamot lime, Tasmanian lavender, and a bouquet of native botanicals, including cinnamon myrtle, anise myrtle, and pepperberry leaf. Now, I will say not all of you will like the dry astringency of this, but they mix it with, uh, what did he say, pink tonic and uh, grapefruit which will sharpen that up. Anyway, if you want to look that look for Wild Spirit Distilling because the Wildlife Dry Gin, which I'm 
drinking right now. Uh, they've got a discount for lockdown, 14% off for 14 days using the coupon 14 days, one four days. Uh, I don't get a cut from that. I, I just think it's interesting gin that they make. So thank you, Peter Leverding, for that. Uh, and for this episode and the rest of the Autumn Series, it's thank you to all the people who contributed to the 9pm More Autumn Series 2021. You're listed on the website, and I'll thank you as we go along and chuck in your trigger words and conversation topics and so on. If you'd like to join those people, obviously, the 9pmedict.com slash tip, the 9pmedict.com slash tip. And if you don't want to do any of that, please just tell your friends and family or enemies, work colleagues, random people on the street. Tell them about the podcast. Uh, tell them especially about the episodes you like uh, because more audience is better. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. Each episode of this podcast, well, well, in some episodes of this podcast, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. And I have two this time. Um, I should have perhaps chucked in more because it's been ages since we've had any elephant stamps. But the first one goes to Sir Ringo Starr, Beatles drumming legend, who has dropped his legal battle against a company called Screaming O Pleasure Products because they had a line of cock rings called Ring-O. Ring-O, you see. So Ringo Starr had uh, filed suit against the company in 2019, objecting to the name uh, of these cock rings. Uh, he said the brand was identical in appearance, sound, connotation and pronunciation to his own name. Quote, consumers will likely believe that the opposers his star's newest venture is sex toys, and this is an association that Opposer does not want. Even though the brand has capital R ring, then capital O. Uh, but, of course, not everyone in catalogues remembers to put the capital O end. Uh, but as news reports are saying, uh, it's reached a happy ending. There's been a withdrawal. A settlement's been made. Uh, and the Cochrane makers promise they will avoid any activity likely to lead to confusion. So, so there you go. Uh, thanks to quality thinking all around, we will not be confusing the drummer of the Beatles with a Cochrane elephant stamp for Zeringo. Uh, and the, the second one goes to William Chapman of Fredericktown, Maryland in the US. Uh, as Marina Amaral notes, Marina Amaral, actually, look at her stuff. She is a digital colorist and colorizes historical uh, black and white photos. She is awesome, but she also digs things out while researching stuff like what color to make things. Uh Back in 1803, before Twitter was a thing, uh, the local newspaper, the Frederick Hornet, contained on September 27, 1803, the following notice. To the public, having received an insult 
from Otho H.W. Luckett, for which he refused to make the reparation demanded, I do declare him a coward, a braggadocio, and a fellow at whom the finger of contempt should always be pointed. And they've actually got like a little typographic finger in there for the finger of contempt. Signed, William Chapman, Fredericktown, September 23rd, 1803. Uh, I do declare him a coward, a braggadocio, and a fellow at whom the finger of contempt should always be pointed. I am inspired by that. Elephant stamp to William Chapman. That is the way to deal with a coward. As uh, you've presumably noticed by now, uh, there isn't a guest with me on the podcast this time. This is kind of a an extra episode I've just chucked into the mix because I thought it's been a while since uh, we had one. Uh, so to mix things up a bit, I will uh, draw a trigger word or two from the uh, glass jar of transparency. So I'm taking one out there. Right. Unfolding a bit of paper. This one's from John Lindsay and... Data retention is his trigger word. Data retention. Well, I I was not expecting that one to come up. So what I'm going to do is uh, I did actually uh, talk a bit about these issues uh, the other day uh, in a piece for ZDNet. Um, with the headline, Australia's cops need reminding that chasing criminals isn't society's only need. Uh, so we'll link to this. But what I will say is that I am particularly worried personally that around the country we have various apps. Uh, I mean, there is the COVID Safe app at the federal level, which has turned out to be essentially useless, though we're still paying $100,000 a month uh, for, for the hosting of that. Gee, that's a good deal, isn't it? Uh, and uh, the various state-based ones that scan QR codes and 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 keep for a period of time uh, a record of where people have been. Now, it turned out that last month in in June that the West Australian Police Force had accessed the data collected by the COVID Safe WA app. That's uh, the West Australian QR code check-in. And uh, the Premier, Mark McGowan, over there had said, look, this, this app is only meant to be used for contact tracing. But the cops disagreed. The cops said, uh, according to Premier McGowan, that it was lawful for them to have this data and they couldn't not do things that are lawful. Now, they do have an argument that the cops are meant to investigate crime. The one they were looking at in this case was uh, a murder. There was another one as well. I forget the details. And they said, look, if we're investigating a murder, we should do whatever we can within our power to track down that murderer. And we shouldn't leave stuff out that is legal for us to include. Now, that's an argument. But at the same time, in Victoria, the Victorian police, Victoria police had asked that state's health agency, look, can we have a look at the data? And, and Vic Victoria Health said, just no. No, you can't have that. This is public health information. 
Um, but the police minister, or acting police minister in Victoria, said, well, you know, Western Australia is going to now introduce a law saying that police can't get at this data. Victorian acting police minister says, well, um, no, you know, I don't want to block the police from doing their thing because if it turns out that we could have caught a crim, but we didn't because we, you know, blocked them from having data, isn't that a bad public health outcome? Uh, Look, I talk about this more at ZDNet about the ethics of this. It is a complicated question, but I, I did end with the observation What's worse, an abstract poor public policy outcome or more people on ventilators struggling for their lives? I mean, if people don't feel that their movements you know, are going to be kept private, they'll stop scanning, won't they? Unless, of course, the cops uh, just arrest them anyway. Uh, I'll draw out another one. From the uh, glass jar of transparency. You can tell this is ad-libbed. It's not as tightly scripted as the rest of the podcast. It's scripted. Yeah, there is a script for much of it. Ah, this is from Sheepy. Long-time supporter of the pod. Thank you, Sheepy. And the word is cluster. I have a choice here. Do I go... Cluster in a COVID sense or clusterfuck? I'm going to go cluster bombs, actually. This was something that happened to me a number of years ago. And uh, there were various people. So back in the first dot-com boom, I, I was a you know producer of digital things. Having gone from radio in South Australia, uh, my move to... Uh, to Sydney was, in fact, uh, part of being headhunted by a uh, first dot-com boom startup in 1995. There you go. Um, And after that particular event, oh, there's so many stories there, but later up I continued occasionally doing bits and pieces and putting together little websites for people doing random little things. And, And one of them, uh, was going to be for a a project for Rolls Royce. You may have heard of Rolls Royce. Uh, not only uh, were they a car manufacturer, and they also make jet engines, and they also have a, a kind of military equipment arm as well. Um, and it was one of those those things where I was told, "Well, look, uh, this is this little project. It's for Rolls Royce's other bit, not the car bit." Um, but you know, do you mind uh, helping us build this website? Uh, because, uh, you know, Rolls-Royce does make, you know, cluster bombs and stuff, which, you know, were in the process at that time of being declared illegal under international law. Um, And it's something that does hit people, because another person who occasionally got me to do things occasionally uh, had clients like BAT, British American Tobacco, who make, as you might imagine, tobacco products. Does one turn down really good money when one needs it? Um, when one really needs it because of ethical concerns. Now, as it happened, for various reasons, I did not do either of those projects. But the decision 
not to do those projects happened before it got to the ethical question. It had to do with timetables and whatever, and 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 I had to simply say, I, I'm sorry, I'm not available um, for that. I'm I'm full up with other things, which I wasn't. Which is really good. That's genuinely it. But I wonder now how I would have then progressed because part of me, certainly in the tobacco case, yes, tobacco is terrible, whatever, but, you know, people do buy it. And not one of these people go, oh, right, nanny state, I'll smoke myself into fucking death by cancer if I want. I have a similar thing with um, with gambling. I know people are, are quite rightly, you know, object to jam- gambling and and gambling advertising in so many ways because, you know, they prey on people and people get addicted to gambling and it ruins people's lives. But who is it that makes the decision, you know, where do you draw the line as to what is simply legal? I mean, tobacco smoking is legal. We just have a whole lot of rules about not advertising it, blah, blah, blah. Um things with less harm are illegal. I don't know where I'm going with that. Send me your comments. You know how to get in touch. I mean, send me an audio file if you like. We can pretend this is talkback. Maybe I should do live talkback occasionally. But I still think about the cluster bombs because they really are terrible, terrible things. As you probably know, the... They release a whole lot of these, you know, hand grenade-sized weapons over a wide area, and a certain percentage of them don't go off when they're meant to, which means that area of land has a certain percentage of ready-to-explode things just scattered around it, a bit like landmines from decades ago. But, you know, weapon, weapons in armed conflict are actually designed to kill people. That's the point of it. Now I'm going to sound like I'm a proponent of war crimes. I'm not, really. Anyway, they are. They, they, thank you for John Lindsay uh, for that one. No, that was Sheepy. John Lindsay was the first one. Thank you for those trigger words. Uh, oh, I think I better move on. <laughs> Here's something I'm uh, kind of looking forward to. Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, you may remember, such for the years. Uh, he's been kind of hiding the last few days, but uh, he has, over the last, you know, however many months, been basking in his high approval ratings, right? After the floods and the bushfires and all of that, uh, it's the power of incumbency and his approval ratings, uh, you know, up in the 60s, 60% and so on, even though he really did fuck all. And, and even though... You know, in the case of the bushfires, for example, the uh, relief payments never really happened and uh, so on and so forth. It's clear that he figures he will cruise through to the next election on those figures on the basis of Australia's supposed excellent work in combating COVID-19. But now, of course, the vaccine response is fucked up, fucked up very badly. People are getting angry. People have worked out. And as someone tweeted the other day, and as others you know, have noticed, I've noticed, we, we're starting to realise that Scott Morrison is that kind of guy who just bluffs his way to the top. But once he gets there, 
he can't actually do the work or, or won't actually do the work. He's, he's you know, a, a doofus. As an aside, have we found out any more about why Tourism Australia sacked Scott Morrison? I mean, two years ago, Karen Middleton in the Saturday paper got some of the, the documents and it all related to contracts for that Australia Where the Bloody Hell Are You campaign. $184 million was spent mostly with MNC Saatchi, the uh, ad agency for their global creative services, uh, and Carrot uh, for placing the media and doing all of the figuring out what the strategy was. And the Auditor General found that in awarding those contracts, information had been kept from the board, procurement guidelines had been breached, and private companies had been engaged before the paperwork was signed and without appropriate value-for-money assessments. Now, Scott Morrison became uh, the general manager or CEO, whatever, the boss of Tourism Australia on a three-year contract in 2004 after he'd spent four years as the state director of the the Liberal Party in New South Wales. And the Tourism Australia board, uh, on which Morrison sat as managing director, was then chaired by former Deputy Prime Minister and Nationals leader Tim Fisher. And the other members of the board of Tourism Australia included Andrew Burns, uh, B-U-R-N-E-S, who owned what is now called the Hello World Travel Company and at the time, or, or now, is the Liberal Party treasurer. So, I mean, there's no, there's no scope there for dodginess, is there? But, but I digress. Anyway, unlike places like Tourism Australia, the Prime Minister is under somewhat more direct scrutiny. And I just wonder whether once the tide of opinion starts to turn, the press gallery will kind of turn their feverish hive mind with all the grace and subtlety of a drunken cow in a bathtub and go for the kill. Morrison will defend himself with his usual cloud of words like a squid panicking in spraying ink, but this time it won't work. The, the, the killer cow will blunder on, Morrison, who'll be barely able to contain his rage when caught out, will thrash about ever more wildly. And eventually, Scott Morrison will get so angry, his eyeballs will explode. And I can't wait. And then after that, Labor will provide nothing of value as an alternative. Morrison's scattered remains will reform like something from a you know, really creepy sci-fi movie, and the Coalition will win another term. If you think I'm wrong, listen to what uh, the leader of Labor, uh, Anthony Albanese, said at the National Press Club. At the heart of the agenda of the Labor government I am determined to lead will be the Australian Jobs Plan. Good, secure jobs are the starting point from which all else follows. Today I'm announcing that a Labor government I lead will commission a full employment white paper. It will draw together experts from across government, industry and the union movement to set out a plan for how we will reduce unemployment and underemployment. We will bring together a broad range of participants in an Australian Jobs Summit as one of the first actions of an incoming Labor government. 
Burgotastic said on Twitter, just read this out at the pub. The whole place is going crazy. Everyone chanting, white paper, white paper, white paper, white paper. Yes, a white paper. But, I mean, Labor could produce a white paper now. There's literally nothing stopping them. But this is a promise that when they get into government, then they'll have a national summit and then that'll produce a white paper. My friend John Avocado on Twitter said, look, I'm not expecting anything revolutionary from the ALP, but something better than a second edition of a document from 75 years ago would be, would be nice. And indeed, Albo did mention this in his speech, a thing called Full Employment in Australia, a white paper, was published in 1945 and it was the defining document of the official economic policy in Australia until 1975. You might argue that it still is. Well done, Albo. The other day, the uh, Lowy Institute for International Affairs had a, a, a fascinating panel discussion uh, about China on the, uh, well, it was, it was the centenary of the founding of the Communist Party in China. Uh, I've linked to that as well. Have a, have a listen. But see, uh, Steve Tsang is director of the China Institute at SOAS University in London. He said, you don't rise to the top of the Communist Party by being incompetent. The leaders have a great depth of experience, uh, which is, of course, somewhat different from certain governments close to, to where I'm sitting. Mark Newton, who's already been uh, quoted in this podcast, but I'm going to quote him again. He said the other day he's just realised that Australia is run by Colonel Cargill from Joseph Heller's Catch-22. It all fits. Uh, so let me read you that bit. Colonel Cargill, a general uh, Peckham's troubleshooter, was a forceful, ruddy man. The bore, before the war, he'd been uh, an alert, hard-hitting, aggressive marketing executive. Uh, he, was also, he was also a very bad marketing executive. Colonel Cargill was so awful a marketing executive that his services were much sought after by firms eager to establish losses for tax purposes. Throughout the civilised world, from Battery Park to Fulton Street... He was known as a dependable man for a fast tax write-off. His prices were high, for failure often did not come easily. He had to start at the top and work his way down. And with sympathetic friends in Washington, losing money was no simple matter. It took months of hard work and careful misplanning. A person misplaced, disorganised, miscalculated, overlooked everything and opened every loophole. And just when he thought he had had it made... The government gave him a lake or a forest or an oil field and spoiled everything, even with such handicaps. Colonel Cargill could be relied on to run the most prosperous enterprise into the ground. He was a self-made man who owed his lack of success to nobody. Men, Colonel Cargill began in Usarian squadron, measuring his pauses carefully, you're American officers. The officers of no other army in the world can make that statement. Think about it. Sergeant Knight thought about it and then politely informed Colonel Cargill that he was addressing the enlisted men and that the officers were to be found waiting for him on the other side of the squadron. 
Colonel Cargill thanked him crisply and glowed with self-satisfaction as he strode across the area. It made him proud to observe that 29 months in the service had not blunted his genius for ineptitude. Men, he began his address to the officers, measuring his pauses carefully, your American officers, the officers of no other army in the world can make that statement. Think about it. Really is the same, isn't it? Which brings me to Bernard Keane's observation in Crikey this week, where he put the case for a potato lid recovery. It's time for Peter Dutton to step up, he said. Scott Morrison's once deft political touch has deserted him. Even as despised as he is, Dutton is now the only option in a bad bunch to lead. Uh, he does point out that uh, the cabinet currently is uh, consisted of historical awfulness. Dutton, on the other hand, he says, has a poor ministerial record. At Home Affairs, he presided over an extraordinary series of bungles and stuff-ups, often in major programs. To be fair, though, many of the stunning scandals in the portfolio have been down to poor quality departmental leadership and lack of judgment among officials of that department. I'll just remind you that the uh, Secretary of the Department of Home Affairs is uh, Mike Pizzullo, who I quote from time to time. Few of the many Auditor-General reports identifying disasters in that department, says uh, Bernard Keane, had any origin in or even connection with Dutton's office. On the positive side, Dutton has cut through and clarity in the way he communicates. No one is ever under any confusion about what he thinks. He is willing to speak clearly and bluntly when the need be, no matter how violently people may disagree. Well, as regular listeners to this podcast will know, I was right about Donald Trump winning in 2016, although I was eventually wrong in 2020. Prime Minister Peter Dutton. Prime Minister. Should we get used to saying that? Prime Minister Peter Dutton. Wow. <laughs> Gotta love it. That's the edict for now. Uh, you know what to do. Go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip, chuck in a few dollars, tell your friends about the pod, all of those things. More episodes coming soon. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. Please wash your hands. And don't forget the 8pm quiz this coming Thursday, the 8th of July, at 8pm, Australian Eastern Standard Time, just search for it on YouTube. The 8pm quiz. See you then. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.